Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, my guest today is honestly one of my three favorite people in the world. My son, Sam Koppelman. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To Sammy, we got to avoid making this like the Saturday Night Live skit of the father and son podcasting. Yeah, that is of paramount importance, though I think an inevitability. No, you mean inevitable that we won't be able to. That we're going to fail, yeah. That we will be like the sketch. I think we already are. Fuck. Really? Yeah, maybe you should back up, do like a sort of more professional intro. We can obfuscate my relationship to you. Today, my guest on the moment is Sam Koppelman, uh, author along with Neil Katyal of the upcoming book, Impeach. The Case Against Donald Trump. Sam is an author, grew up in New York City, went to, um, let me check my, let me check my things, uh, nice. Harvard University, and then uh, became a speechwriter, or was while at school. Uh, am I allowed to say you worked on a campaign, a presidential campaign? No. I didn't think I needed to prep this interview um, in the same way I do others with what not to mention. But you did Are you also going to on- mention my like sixth grade crushes? And sort of other embarrassing things from my past. All right. So to get serious for a second, the reason that I wanted you on the podcast is um, I think what you and Neil have done is incredibly important. And, um, but, and I also think process-wise, what you were able to accomplish is something that a lot of people who listen to the podcast care about. And I had a bird's eye view. And, um, and I kind of want to dig into like what prepared you at, because you are – you're you're turning 24 in a couple of weeks, so you're young to have um, accomplished this, and and you but you've sort of been preparing for it for a long time, I think, don't you? Yeah, I mean, nothing I've done or could have done prepared me for the sprint that was trying to write a book in three weeks with a remarkable partner, um, but I've definitely been honing the craft of writing words as quickly as possible while making sure that they're still thoughtful for a really long time. Yeah. And when someone says a really long time and the person who says that is 24, I mean, you're not even 24 yet. What now? Yeah. I I sound like an asshole when I say that. No, you just sound, no, you, but it doesn't sound like, um, it could, it could be true. So I, I want to, but, but what's fascinating to me, Hunter, which is, sorry, his middle name, what's fascinating to me, and just what I call him, actually, usually, what's fascinating to me is that you have been working at this since you were, when would you say you started really focusing on, I'm going to learn and teach myself to write well, to write quickly, and to be focused at this? And how did that come to be important to you? Like why? What was driving it? This is an aspect of my privilege that I've thought about a lot. In addition to all of the other stuff, race, gender, what have you, the fact that I grew up in a home where like my only concept of how you made a living or did a job was that you typed on a keyboard. So as you know, other people grew up in coal mining families. I grew up in a family where the job was writing. That's just what you did. Um, and so to pinpoint a moment when I decided that was important would be a guess and would also, I think, misrepresent what actually took place. 
which is that I, I think I just realized from a very young age that writing was this thing of paramount importance in life. And I also knew that I couldn't do a bad job writing, not only because I had the ridiculous privilege of, you know, my essays in fifth grade were read by professional writers, um, but and, and, you know, the fact that after school every day, I would read my mom's writing out loud back to her, the work that she'd done during the day, so she could hear it out loud from another person's voice. So I was, like, intimately involved in the creative process. But it was also, you know... I felt like I had a duty to be a good writer because it would be completely absurd and unacceptable if I, if I didn't do something with that. So do you think that it was sort of a put on you? And cause I, I had written down to ask how had expectations affected you both in a positive and negative way? No, I mean, there was no pressure to be a writer and the type of writing I do is different than both of my parents who for the most part write fiction, one of whom hosts a podcast as well. And writes his questions sometimes. Um, but yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where to, it's impossible to remove myself from the fact that both of my parents were writers. And whether it comes from explicit pressure, whether it comes from some biological writing thing, which was passed down to me, which I think is less likely, or whether it comes from the fact that, you know, I had just the craziest, most amazing luxury, which is that, I mean, I'm not trying to gas you up, as the kids say, but you get a lot of people who send you a lot of things that they want read, edited, proofed, and I could just, you know, go to the other room with my laptop, have you read a thing, and get edits. I mean, starting from that place, it would be a shame if I weren't able to turn that into becoming a good writer. Well, I don't know. I would say some people in that situation would react by saying, I'm not going to be a writer. I'm not going to write at all. I feel it's daunting, or um, I feel it's, it's useless. But 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 also, I want to say, you were... Listen, you're a gifted writer. You've been gifted writer for your whole life, but you did not. You went to a school that, you know, on the podcast, I'm often asking people about how teachers reacted to their writing, and you did have the. You were kind of ran the gamut in terms of the way people responded. Totally, and so, you know, um. As you know, I grew up kind of really not liking most teachers except like two teachers I ever had. And so I would gas you up in a way and be like, ignore anyone telling you what they want you to write. But you had a different approach to it. And can you talk a little bit about what it was like when you would deal with the criticism from writing teachers in school? Yeah. So that criticism definitely hit you hard and reached you quickest. But I think it's important to put it in the context of the criticism I received from my math teachers or from, <laughs> or from my science teachers, all of whom didn't need to tell me that I wasn't necessarily realizing my potential or my writing was glib, but <laughs> could instead tell me um, that my answers were wrong. And so I would come home not having anything really to do. Like, you know, I'd get an 85 on a math test. I would study really hard. I would go through long periods of negotiation with the teachers I'd convince them to let me correct it up to like an 88. Then I would ace, you know, in science, the lab reports and figure out a way to scheme that. And so I would, I would had sort of like various coping mechanisms there that enabled me to maintain my GPA without actually changing anything substantively. Writing was much harder because I was convinced that I was doing good work. There was no evidence they could point to that it was bad. But teachers would say, you know, I like would never, and this was also like, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for these teachers. Like this kid would come in, he's supposed to write a five paragraph essay. Instead, I do some like ridiculous, I mean, I literally wrote an essay about the American Revolution. The question was, is it conservative or radical? 
and I wrote an essay about Earl the Pearl's spin move, about how now if you look back on it, it would seem pretty rudimentary, but it was radical at the time because he paved the way for all these future revolutions. And that was my essay on the American... Like, what a ridiculously entitled thing to write about. So I can understand why the teachers didn't like that, but it did take me a while to learn to separate their criticism of me as a student. Although, I mean, again, this also all sounds ridiculous because I got basically good grades the whole time, which I know you were about to correct me with probably or interfere with. But I would get this, this negative feedback on a lot of the stuff that I wrote, and I would have to reconcile that with the fact that I thought I was producing good work. But I do think that it made me become a much crisper writer over time and, and gave me a lot of versatility. So now in my job as a speechwriter, I can do creative, ridiculous things like writing about Earl the Pearl spin move. But, but how did you learn to take criticism well when oh, sure. I was so bad at it? And I didn't give you the good parenting thing of like, well, I'll try to find the value in it. I mostly was like telling you to ignore uh, it. Honestly, probably just I, ha I do kind of have like a, an insatiable need to um, to appeal to other people or to not have them be mad at me. Like I would respond and, and, and there would be a kernel in truth to, to some of this stuff. Like, you know, I, I definitely didn't like put post-its in my catcher in the rye like the other kids did in that class in seventh grade when Jeremy Rosenholtz told me that my essay wasn't necessarily as deep as the other ones or as well-sourced as Gary Goldman says in his special, The Great Depression. I will protect him no longer, though I do love Jeremy Rosenholtz. He's actually a great, very important teacher to me because he called me out on that kind of stuff and, and taught me to do the rigor on the other side of things. And this is actually, this is important in the context of writing this book, Impeach, which is that I did, over the course of middle school and high school, learn that good writing and good sentences alone did not make a good product, and that it was, in fact, important that I maybe not put sticky notes in the books that I read, but that I really understood them and like rigorously researched before writing things. And that is a skill that is far more important than being able to you know, turn around a decent well, sentence. What, what I'm, yeah, what I'm trying to get to is, though, that although it seems in a certain level ridiculous to talk about what a high school teacher or junior high school teacher said... The fact that you produced this book at the young age you did makes this stuff significant because something happened between, uh, you know, it's a short period of time, between 15 and 23 when you wrote the book, that, that's a very short amount of years in a way where you turned yourself into um, a top professional writer, meaning I'm not, I'm not saying you're the world's greatest, the greatest writer in the world, but you are um, uh, compensated as and published as a writer um, working at a, at a high level. And so you must have, you, you must have, even in ways that I didn't see with you living under my roof, made certain decisions about how you were going to process criticism and grow from it. Yes. Beyond, hey, I'm a people pleaser. Because that's so, uh, kind of a half, true say, but a half bullshit answer. So, so I'd say I've gotten better at it and it didn't always come easily to me. There's definitely a turning point. I mean, I'd become a good writer before this, and thanks in large part to my colleagues at Fenway, seriously, like, you know, Ben Krauss, who's the managing partner at Fenway, and told me that a big part of being a speechwriter is doing the research, that by the time you're actually writing the words, you know, you should already basically know what you want to say. Um, so that was all very important. But there's actually a specific, I mean, there's a specific person 
whose criticism of me finally resonated, who said that my writing was oftentimes glib, that I used my facility with words to sort of cover up a lack of depth or a lack of sort of putting myself out there. And that was Michael Pollan when I took his personal essay class. At college. At college. Um, at a small school in Cambridge. He... Uh, I mean, I want to say you're doing that tongue-in-cheek. I'm doing it tongue-in-cheek. I also want to say. Um, he is someone who, you know, whose writing I deeply respected, who can write an essay in a way that's as fun to read as anybody in the world, but that just feels like it comes from just a well of research, personal, in the, you know, in, in, the, in the halls of libraries. I don't know if libraries have halls that show sort of the way that I do research. Um, but Michael Pollan basically would read my writing and say... In the bowels say, of a In the bowels of a library. We could do an edit there. Um, but Michael Pollan pushed me to sort of go beyond that, to like really do internal research, like to take inventory of myself and to do introspection before writing and to also chase down everything, like chase down every lead related to the topic I'm writing about. And that was a big turning point for me just in terms of like the process of writing stuff. Um, so, I, I mean, he had a huge impact. Well, I want to, okay, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about the essay you wrote to get into Pollen's class. Huh. And... Deep cut. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, no, we'll, we'll post that in the show notes. <laughs> no, we won't. We don't have show notes. And if we did, I don't think Sam would let me post it. But what was fascinating to me, dude, was that you almost quit, right? Because all this stuff, again, it's a compressed time frame. But you, because I was going to ask you about you almost quit writing. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I guess that's an important that's an important point to note. So talk about what happened so in like, college. Okay. Yeah. So because it's true, I. You know, if you were just a guest on the show, I would say, you know, you got to a point where you wrote a bunch of stuff. You got an unbelievable amount of um, abrasive and intense and invasive feedback for your positions. You almost quit writing. And now here you are writing uh, an incredibly controversial thing that you know is going to make you a target of ad hoc yeah, attacks. Yeah, okay. So that's true. So I came into college having edited my high school newspaper, having written like hot takes since I was like 15 for Huffington Post. Like legit hot takes. It's crazy that those were published. Thank you to Liz Pearl and everyone else at HuffPost who gave a chance to a, an annoying teenager. But then I got to college and I, I had this column. It's called Good Cop, Bad Cop. Like obviously spelled K-O-P-P because that's uh -huh. what I was then. Uh, clever. And then I wrote a bunch of pieces that were just like... When I look at them now, I'm like, who was that guy? I, they're not because I disagree with the arguments in them necessarily, but they're written from this like kind of egotistical tone. They're, again, to use that word, a little bit glib. The arguments aren't like, don't have that much depth to them. And I, I just like started really tiring of my writing voice. There's two pieces in particular that... My father is alluding to one of which... football. Well, I'm going to do both, but one of which is a piece I wrote with my friend Nathaniel Horowitz called Why We Won't Punch, about why he wouldn't join a final club. That definitely didn't make me a ton of friends. Then a piece that I wrote called Shut Down Harvard Football, which left me with, with fewer friends yet. Um, and the premise of that piece, I actually... And what's interesting is with that piece, I actually kind of laid it all out there. I was like, I love football. I've never been that big a person. I used to like play Madden with my like 
uncle and my estranged grandfather who's like no longer around. I thought Not this was dad. like no, yeah, he's great. This other guy, huge asshole. Um, anyway, I play, I play Madden with them. I like cared about fantasy football, and I was like, and so, but so like I have all this emotional attachment, but like I've also had a few concussions, and I also think that football at an academic institution whose design is to improve people's brains doesn't really make a lot of sense because football deteriorates people's brains. And I published that piece and didn't expect a ton of backlash. I thought it might be controversial, but no one really reads The Crimson anyway. Sorry to whoever's the current editors. Um, and so I thought it'd be fine. It ended up sort of creating a bit of a... I mean, firestorm's a, a, a self-aggrandizing term. On campus, it, it, it made me a bit of a pariah. Football players made memes about me, dug up stuff about me personally, made, you know, took pictures of my biceps, which I, in the piece, called small. And they were like, no, 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 but they're actually small. We have the receipts. Um... My biceps have grown a little bit since then um, for, for listeners who, who don't know what I look like. They're still not, you know, necessarily that, that um, impressive. Regardless, I then decided to pivot more towards speech writing and ghost writing. Not so much consciously, but it's just what I started to do, and I stopped writing under my own name um, I mean, the football years. players were, yeah, they were... No, but I, I don't want to emphasize that. They, they were all fair shots, because I, like, came in on a topic I didn't know about, really, and decided to share my views in a way that was, you know, kind of absurd, and that I actually then unpacked in Michael Pollan's class. I went back and spoke to a bunch of football players, and he encouraged me to do that and to s- revisit my, my thoughts on football, and that piece that I wrote ended up being a much more thoughtful, nuanced one, because of Pollen's work, so that was all really well. That was the one the Boston Globe, right? Or no, was that, that a was a different. One? That was a different piece, still anti-football. But this was this was this was this was after that. Regardless, I then went off to do ghostwriting for a long time, and that's what I wrote. Michael Pollan in that letter to get into his class, I wrote that I'd written for, you know, politicians at the highest level, for CEOs running the biggest companies in the world, for athletes for entertainers for just about anybody but i'd forgotten my own writing voice i not just forgotten it i sort of like deplored the writing voice that i once had and wanted to build one anew and anytime i settled into the pocket of that old annoying version of my writing voice that was like slinging hot takes in huff post and then the crimson i michael pollan pushed me to you know write things that were deeper that were more nuanced, and I did it, and I started writing under my own name a little bit more. I did, I published a piece in the Boston Globe about football, which was less polemical and more nuanced. I also just started writing things on my own um, in my voice, but by the time Neil asked me to write this book a couple of years later, um, I felt that, you know, especially because I was writing the book with Neil, whose opinions are, you know, as, who's as smart about these topics as anybody in the world and who I knew I could trust and sort of put some responsibility in. So I can't quite, this isn't quite the end of a journey of being okay with putting my own name on things um, because it's, this is co-written and we're sort of co-responsible and it's, you know, a lot of this are, these ideas in here are ideas he has. But regardless, I felt that I was ready to put myself out there and to start writing these kinds of pieces because I'd sort of like gotten into the pocket of a writing voice that 
I feel much more comfortable in that much better reflects who I am as a person and is much less just nails on a chalkboard. But, but another, another factor with ad hoc criticism is that many of us are, are frightened away. So, you know, how did you, because now you have a very measured take, right? When, when people were first coming at you, I just wonder what that felt like and how you feel now receiving that kind of, I'm not talking about thoughtful criticism. I'm talking about people just saying, you're an asshole, you're a pussy, you suck. You, you know, and because yes, I think one, it caused you, you, you got introspective at a certain point later, but, but also you were cowed a little bit, I think. And again, because of the way you're built, you go through this stuff probably more rapidly than most of us do. But like, you know, while you were still in college, but I'm interested in, in, because when you said yes to doing this book, you were saying yes to putting yourself in the middle of well, a maelstrom. Well, part of it is that I see how long these things last and I've worked with people at the highest level of politics and people hate you for like 48 hours at most. That's like basically how long hatred on the internet lasts. And with something like writing a book, the costs of being hated for 48 hours are tiny in comparison to the benefits of getting to write a book and to do so on such an important topic. So that's like sort of like the rational side of it. You're trying to get at the emotional side of how I've been able to like turn down the volume on yeah, to keep going. criticism. Yeah. And I think it's just like, honestly, I think it's just confidence in, in, in myself, a lot of which was built speech writing where, you know, if I write words that the most powerful people in the world feel comfortable saying, I'm, I know that they're not, I don't, I don't have as much of an imposter syndrome because I've been able to have those words aired out with, with, with people who, who have the experience to back them up. And so when I'm writing, I feel like I, I, I feel entitled to share these things. And then just on a personal level, like I think I'm steel, like I'm more steeled. Like I have like, I mean, truthfully, like I have tons of friends who I know love me, who I don't feel insecure about. I view none of the criticism as reflective of the work or of who I am. And I view most of it as most of that kind of just quick criticism as coming from a place of people's own insecurities about themselves, insecurities as they relate to me. And I'm able to better sort out the legitimate kinds of criticism, like the criticism that comes from Michael Pollan or someone who's thoughtfully engaging with my work. Well, it doesn't have to be someone accredited. It just no, has to no, be. No, no, no. If, if I see that there's, if, if I see that there's thought, I mean, I've responded to emails or tweets from people who have nuanced questions about various things. In fact, I love doing that. Engaging with people who I disagree with is a huge thing that I've actually sort of like institutionally built into my life. It's very easy when you're in political circles or environments like I'm in to just be surrounded with people who you agree with. I go out of my way to spend time with people whose views are different than mine. Um, and I think that that's hugely important and enriching to who I am um, now. But that's different than, as you called it, ad hoc criticism or just reactionary criticism, which I've been able to turn the temperature down and you just don't check Twitter for 48 hours and it's gone. So, you know. You have to teach me how to do that. That stuff's meaningless. How to not yeah. check Twitter for 48 hours. Yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of, t <laughs> you know, like reader, I've spent a lot of time trying to convince him to do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I've just gotten much better at turning the volume down on that stuff. Do you think part of it has to do with rigor? 
with like the rigor with which you approach the stuff. Totally. Yeah. I also know, don't have imposter syndrome because I'm not an imposter. Like I also now, before I write something, will read every fucking word about the topic. And like, you know, Neil and I wrote this book in three weeks. Neil spent a lifetime studying it. I spent three weeks not sleeping. I read eight books on impeachment. We had two awesome researchers, Jake and Elena, who helped out as well. I asked them for as much information as I could possibly have. And this is something that comes directly from speech writing because when I'm working as a speech writer, I have to be able to write for someone who is probably the foremost expert in the world on what they're speaking about. And the speech needs to be reflective of that. So before I write a speech for anybody, I have them send me all of their past speeches, all the relevant information, data, papers in that domain. We all do this at Fenway, but I, I read it. I become really well-versed in it so that it becomes the water I'm swimming in. And only then do I write something. And every day, whether it was doing research or having long phone calls with Neil where I just ask follow-up question after follow-up question. Like, I know what I wrote in this book with Neil. What we put together is just, it's correct. Like, it's, it's, um, there's legitimate arguments on both sides of it, but it's grounded in such a well of research and, and knowledge and history and the law and experience that I know that there's authority behind the words, authority that I definitely didn't have slinging hot takes for HuffPost. Well, this co comes to another thing that I'm interested in, which is the ability you've shown here to shift, change your mind based on new information. So many of us become entrenched in a take, in an opinion, and, I mean, as you know, like, Eric Seidel, who um, is one of my favorite thinkers, he's a poker player, thinkers, he, a long time ago, talked to me about, you know, being willing to have, hold, you know, it's like the thing Andreessen says, you know, you, um, what is it, a, a strong, uh, strong positions, weakly held. Yeah, lightly held. Um, and, uh, you know, you used to make fun of the T-shirt I would wear that said Impeach 45, because it was before the Ukraine, it was just a feeling. And I'm wondering what happened in your research that got you to a place of certainty. Yeah, I mean, so I stand by that when those Impeach 45 shirts went on the shelves, I think it was probably misguided for them to be there. Um, I, like Speaker Pelosi, actually, viewed impeachment as the option of last resort. I think that politically it's a nightmare to impeach a president, or it can be if you don't have the goods. And I think that for our democracy, the costs of removing someone from office who the people duly elected are just incredibly high. Only when the cost of inaction became greater than the cost of action did it become clear to me that we needed to impeach this guy. And the Ukraine scandal, the scandal revolving Ukraine, I just want to emphasize, I didn't call it the Ukraine. It's called Ukraine. This scandal, when you do the research and you go back to the Constitutional Convention in 1787, as we do in this book, and you look at the debate between the founders, where there's a couple of people who are skeptical that impeachment needs to be in the Constitution, people like Governor Morris. And he's like, are we sure? Can't we just like resolve this stuff at the ballot box? And then like Madison and Franklin, they all come together and they're like, well, what if there's like a president who, like, becomes vulnerable to a foreign power's influence and, like, tries to bribe them. And then, like, Governor Morris is like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, obviously we got to be able to, like, remove that kind of president. Because as George Mason says, you know, 
you, if the way you got to the office of the presidency or the way you're trying to get there is by cheating and you can't be held accountable, then we'll probably only have cheaters as presidents. So once I understood the nature of the Ukraine scandal, its historical significance, and also what it means now, which is that we have a president in an office who will wield the powers vested in him for personal benefit instead of for the benefit of the people, no matter what cost it, it, it puts on checks and balances, on our national security, on whatever else. I mean, this is just not the kind of president who you can leave it to voters to decide whether to keep in office or take away because he will cheat and make sure voters are not making an opinion based on accurate information. I feel we need to just go back to the name you said, Governor. His name is Governor, yeah. Uh, like, like, so you're not just mispronouncing Governor. No, 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 his name is Governor Morris. He's not a governor. Like, in is fact, it spelled like Governor? No, 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 it's spelled, I mean, it's spelled like Governor. It's not spelled identically to Governor. Is it an O-O? Like, how do we know it's Governor, not Governor? Well, now I'm getting self-conscious about the spelling of the name, but I mean, it's, it's Governor Morris. I've honestly followed Neil's lead on the pronunciation here. I'll consult Jill Lepore, my history professor, who I think is, is the final word on American history to... Uh, yeah, I think Professor Lepore is a good one, but I'm just saying I never heard that name, and now I'm feeling kind of bad I didn't name you Governor. Governor, yeah. I mean, uh, I had a there hard time been a much getting better... Hunter in there as the middle name, but Governor would have been Governor would have awesome. been a much better comeback story <laughs> for me. Yeah, that would have been incredible. It's not just that Jeremy... That would have cut almost all the privilege. It's not just Jeremy Rosenholtz. It's all the kids who called me Governor to them. <laughs> right. Then I say, read, read my, look at my book. Look at my book now. My book with Neil. Oh, we're getting the spelling... <laughs> We got Bob a number Tavner, crunch. Bob Tavner, producer of the podcast, just came in. It's a G-O-U-V-E-R. I did not see that R coming in there. N-E-U-R. Governor Morris. Governor Morris, who was a founding father. I mean, how do I not know that there's a guy? Oh, he was the penman of the Constitution. There's sort of a lot of discussion about who the penman of the Constitution was. Different people wrote different parts. I would like to note here that the book Impeach, the Case Against Donald Trump, is actually outranking on Amazon at this very moment, the Bill of Rights by James Madison. So um, there you are people You mean in constitutional, wrote, in this section? On Amazon, if you look at the rankings, it's got Neil Katyal with Sam Koppelman, and then afterwards... James Madison? James Madison. In fairness to, in fairness to Founding Father Madison, that thing's been on the shelves for a long time, and it's still selling. Yeah, no, I mean, so, I, res I respect I mean, the longevity. I think it's for fair sure. to sort of say that while you may outsell him now, I'm not sure that that's going to continue. Sammy, I just want to talk about the pressures a little bit of all this. Because when we talk about expectation, because I do think, yes, you had certain people who gave you. Um, then we're going to get back to impeachment. But certain people gave you encouragement or criticism along the way. But, but also a lot of expectation along the way. And I'm, when you set out at a young age to become a thing, and then you kind of become that thing, and all along people are saying things to you like about, you know, they would, when they would criticize you, it would always be with the understanding of you have an exceptional talent at this and you're not, and, and here's why it could be better. Um, you know, people would say, I, I, I would give a normal, I mean, I remember, people would say, I would give a normal person an A for this paper. I'm not going to give you an A for this paper. And I'm just wondering if that stuff ever felt overwhelming to you. And, and also, on the other side of it now, if this moment affords an opportunity for reset or a deepening of commitment to doing the things you've been doing, or if you just don't know. 
I definitely have had a few North Stars from a young age in terms of what I wanted to become as a writer that I've chased after and that I've basically been able to get to to different respects at different levels of getting there now. Um, like, I always wanted to be a speechwriter for important politicians, basically ever since I read about Jon Favreau for the first time. And I always wanted to... When you were, to, like, 14, I think, right? Yeah, there was some piece about President Obama's chief speechwriter. I mean, Fabs doesn't even know this, but it was, like, about President Obama's chief speechwriter who was, like, 25 years old and dating Rashida Jones or something, and I was like, oh, that sounds like a viable career path. <laughs> um... And so, uh, you know, I haven't accomplished the second thing. I'm a big, I'm wearing a Vampire Weekend shirt right now, so I'm rooting for Rashida and Ezra, of course. Um, but, uh, but so I definitely have sought sought this out as a North Star for a really long time, being a speechwriter, and also, um, like writing a book was always something that I held up as a goal. But you asked about the forward-looking side of this equation, and I literally have no fucking idea what I'm doing next. Um, I don't think I want to do exactly what I'm doing forever. Um, but I'm happy doing it for now. Uh, the speech, you know, speech writing stuff. I just, yeah, I, I don't, I've sort of like got to come up with my next few North stars. Well, that's what I'm kind of asking is, is, uh, in accomplishing this and the way that it happened. So talk a little bit about how it happened, but in the way that it happened and then now you're on the other side of it, have you allowed yourself to sort of be like, huh, I did this thing? No. I mean, the way I operate is I, so I don't even like, I mean, this is sort of a, this is sort of a synecdoche type thing where it symbolizes the whole, which is like, I don't even have a calendar, like a, like a physical calendar. Like I don't have, like I, I have some meetings that other people invite me to and might show up on my calendar, but I basically don't know what I'm doing more than two hours before I do it at any time. I do have these like, big North Stars that I've chased that are like the, the, the big picture macro goals. But on the micro, I basically give myself tasks and I just like chase them furiously until I'm stopped like a Newton's love inertia thing where I'm just like things in motion, stay in motion. And then like I get redirected somewhere else and I just like furiously chase that thing and don't stop. And so I don't really know where the, I mean, so many mixed metaphors, my God, but I don't know where the compass is pointed. Like, I don't know what the, what the next thing is, right. but the way that I work has always been that I have these like sort of like big dreams and goals, but I mostly just care about doing the work like every day, just using an incredible amount of rigor as much as I can to just like get shit done. Um, and, and that sort of like limits the amount of time I have to like celebrate past accomplishments or to think about my biggest ambitions. I'm mostly thinking about how I can do the thing I'm doing at that exact moment. I think I'm blaming myself can. for you not uh, not being able to celebrate. I mean, this guy is still in the Oval Office. No Republicans have come out in favor of impeachment yet. I mean, I'm like viewing the success of this book as minds changed, which I mean might be a tough standard in the most polarized era in American politics, probably since um, the '60s and and maybe even since the 1860s. But um, when did I, those two oh, is that when those the two guys fought in the chamber that starts Doris Kearns Goodwin's book? Oh, with the with the canes? With the yeah. canes, yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually end of eighteen fifties, but I could be wrong. Someone can fact check that. Um, but around then, that's when they used to actually fight in the chambers. Yeah, and then there's 
an interesting story with the um, impeachment of, of Tyler where um, someone threatens to punch someone else and actually does end up punching someone else on the floor of Congress. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely Why were times... Why was Tyler impeached? Basically, um, he wasn't a real Whig, and Harrison died, and he was the first person who wasn't elected and became president. He was a vice president who assumed the, hour, the powers of the was presidency. Was that back when you the second-place finisher got to be president? No, it was... I, he picked Tyler. It was the you know Tippecanoe and yeah. Tyler two thing, um, but anyway, he basically comes into power and starts vetoing all the Whig le- legislation that's passed. And you know you got to feel for the Whigs like they spent a lot of time trying to elect Harrison president. Dude dies because he gives too long an inauguration speech. Gets cold in the cold, um, and then if they're dealing with this dude vetoing every bill, like I don't want to impeach him too. But I mean seriously, this shows the the sort of like high bar for impeachment. That inquiry got thrown out before there were any votes or anything because they were like, this is clearly not So that was an impeachment an impeachable inquiry, but they didn't actually offense. formally yeah, I mean, impeach him. No, he was never formally impeached. The only ones to be impeached are Johnson um, and Clinton, about to be Trump. Nixon resigned just before he was formally impeached. Um, so when Nixon but, resigned sort of at this point in the process, like an investigation was going on? It's No, the Judiciary Committee had voted to remove Nixon. Um, and, you know, and then... There's the dramatic scene of Goldwater and all the Republicans rushing the White House and yes. saying, you know, you have no choice but to resign. So he did it. Um, and that was after the smoking gun and the Supreme Court ruling and all sorts of interesting stuff you can read about in Impeach, the case against Donald Trump, um, written by Neil Katyal with Sam Koppelman. Um, but, but uh, I, I mean, we're definitely at, and this just to bring it back to what we were discussing, which is like viewing this book as successful or unsuccessful, I don't think that it's hopeless at this point. I do think that it's unlikely, but that the American people have a lot to learn and that Congress is responsive to the American people. And so if minds are changed by this inquiry, as they should be, um, I do think that it's possible Republicans follow suit. And if he's impeached, then um, you know, then I'll feel pretty proud of, of whatever small role our book played in that. And um, just going back to that question of, of expectations... How can we stick with like the old impeachment history? No, okay. you're on the moment. I'm on the moment. I mean, you've listened to many more episodes of this show than most people. You has know to, that I'm going to circle to be more than any other person. You know, I'm going to circle back. I remember the first episodes, Seth Meyers. That was the first episode. That still, even this is not going to get away from this question of how, because a lot of us, are, you know, son, that I spend a lot of my time thinking about how to help people get past the things that stop us. And one of the things that stops most of us or many of us is worrying about how to grapple with expectations. And, you know, outsized and unreasonable expectations have been placed on you for a long time because you're smart. So how, and I've often wondered, and by the way, if people are wondering if this is what our Thanksgiving dinner conversation is like, Kind of. It sort of might be a little bit like this, but with more talk about the Knicks and pro wrestling. Um, and more and music. dodging extended family member questions. Yeah, and maybe dodging certain questions. But seriously, how did you deal with the outsized expectations? I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's like a, it's a difficult question. Yeah, you're, I would say, here no, but I would say. No, but I would say... 
I mean, this is like a, this is a cliche comment, but like, I do think my expectations for myself have always been higher than not in terms of like external accolades or whatever, but like, I've, I've never let myself be satisfied with anything I've accomplished. I've always wanted to do more because I don't, I mean, yeah, like, you know, privilege conversations get like, sort of like simplified into all these like words, like. No, but male, dig, dig white, straight, it. whatever. Right. But like when I just like think about the magnitude of the privilege that I had, like it's it's so so unattainable to so so many people, and it's not just like the fact that my parents could edit my essays being professional writers. It's the fact that like I could talk to them about whatever, and like I had a super happy house growing up, and like that's huge. Like that's just a massive incalculable thing, and like I never had to worry about paying for college so I could just pursue my education like sort of like through a very narrow through, through a very narrow lens of like doing as best as I can in school without all this other stuff weighing me down I like knew my sister was taking care like there was there was never a moment when I had like even a modicum of worry about actually important shit so like it's absurd to feel you can feel proud of individual micro things um especially human stuff. Like if something I write, like touches someone else, that's cool. But it never feels like I can rest on my laurels because my laurels were like built on a fucking All right. So our expectations essentially of... have fucked you up. I'm just, just double checking no, no, that I you mean, can no, never feel no, no, like that's, satisfied or like no, you succeeded. No, that's a okay, glib, no, that's a glib way of, 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 of thining about it because the truth is like, I think that there are more people including myself, who should do more of this, who grow up with just immense privilege. And so many of them decide to just, like, go into finance or, like, go do some job that, like, doesn't give back in any way. And going into finance is cool if that's your passion, but, like, do they give some real amount of their money to charity at the end of the year? Like, do they do that even though their entire lives are basically taken care of? Like, like most of them don't. And so I think we don't need less of people in positions of privilege deciding that they're, the work that they've done can be chalked up to external factors. We probably need more of people. And again, and I need to do more of this in a whole bunch of ways, but there, there's, there needs to be more people who are like me in just the narrow respect of being like, yeah, this shit isn't good enough. Like this shit isn't because I'm like some exceptional person. This is because like, I've been given a mountain of privilege and I'm, I do think that I've, you know, I do wake up trying to make the most of it every day, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. So does that mean that you never, you don't think you've, cause you have, one of the things you're able to do with your writing is I think you're able to understand, and this may be just because of rigor, but it does seem like you're able to understand an outsider's perspective. Like you've tried to be able to understand an outsider's perspective and I would have written that off to sort of moments in high school or in your life when you've been kind of... I've never really been, like, right, an outsider. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I was at the second top-tier high school lunch table. Like, <laughs> like I wasn't sitting with Joey and Andres every day, but, like, we had friends. Like, we, we, we did well. It was Shout all out fine. to Joey and Andres. Yes, yeah, yeah, sick. Um, nice table, guys. Um, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. Actually, those two guys are awesome. Um, but nice table, though. Yeah, sick table. Um, congrats. But but like, I I don't know what you mean by the like sympathizing with outside perspectives thing. I will say that I've made sure not to just 
to the best of my ability, stay in bubbles of people who grew up with the same exact experiences as I have and have always sought out others with difficult experiences. But there just is like a limit to well, what I can understand. But empathy, to be a speechwriter, I think empathy is important. Or right, I, so I was actually thinking about this this morning. Um, I was on a podcast with Yasha Monk, another dear former professor of mine who's a really, really close friend now. And I was talking about like the stuff that Democrats should talk about. Like, you know, not having to worry about having a roof over your head and like having food on the table, like having health care. Like, this is just shit I've taken for granted my whole life. And I'm able to write good speeches about it, but I don't have that visceral connection to it in the way that, you know, a lot of people who should be able to tell their stories and have their stories told by people in positions of power understand this stuff. And I do wonder if specifically the Democratic Party, but our politics more broadly would be better served if more of the people, I mean, it would for sure be better served if more of the people weren't guessing what kind of speech would appeal to people's most primal sort of emotions are and life experiences are, but whose remarks are grounded in that, um, in that experience. And so, you know, I, I do think that there's probably too many people with backgrounds like mine whose voices are too loud and, you know, not enough people with different backgrounds who get to be heard. Yeah, that makes sense. Talk about where you were when this call came in, what your thought process was when the great Neil Kachal asked you if you could write this book with him and, um, and sort of what that moment felt like and... I mean, it was a what crazy moment. I, I was working two jobs at the time. I was actually in Las Vegas that day. I was living in Texas. There was definitely no way I could say yes to writing this book with Neil in this what did short he ask you? A time frame. He asked if I could work with him to write this book in three weeks, and there was no way I could have said yes, but there was also equally no way I could have said no. I mean, this is one of America's most remarkable people, argued more Supreme Court cases than any person of color, including Thurgood Marshall, whose record he just passed, has made just a massive difference and incredible change for good in our country. And is someone who also, you know, has a way more insane schedule than I, than I, than I do. Um, so if he was going to drop everything to do this, I knew it was because he thought it could make a difference um, in this impeachment thing, and I, I couldn't possibly say no to that. So I, you know, sent him whatever materials he needed to be sent. Basically locked myself in a room in Texas for a few weeks. Talk about that. I mean, what does that mean when you say, oh, I didn't sleep or I locked myself in a room? So, what yeah, so I actually should be more exact about yeah, I didn't please sleep. please do. Very intentional about – I started talking a lot like uh, Congressman Beto O'Rourke where I just drop subjects. Very intentional. I, w I am very intentional about um, the way – that, uh, about, I mean, and this is like, if you listen to this podcast, you know, this is an apple doesn't fall far from the tree or whatever type thing. But I'm, I, I write a little bit like I'm on Adderall and that I'm incredibly focused. I'm not on, I've, I've never used any um, performance enhancing drugs, by the way. I grew up in the Barry Bonds era where, where I realized that you can't make the haul that way. Um, but uh, but I, I, I write in this like sort of like manic fugue state, which is also how I research. It's how I do first drafts of everything. Um, but I also make sure to 
take care of myself. So like not a day went by during the writing of this book that I didn't play basketball. Um, like every single day I told Neil, like I'll be out of pocket for an hour and a half. I'm going to play basketball. It's sort of non-negotiable at the, uh, at the Y. Um, and the Y. yeah, I just decided to drop the, 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 the city. Um, but yeah, sure. And the El Paso Y. Um, but, uh, but so I would make sure to play basketball and I would make sure to get some sleep every night. Um, but I would write these draft, you know, I'd wake up super early, 5am or something. Would think about what a chapter could look like. Neil was doing the same. We'd get on the phone, hash it out. And then like both of us would, you know, spend the day writing. I just would, I would open up a doc. You would do first pass often and send it to Neil or he would do first pass. And yeah, it worked it both ways. Work? It worked both ways with different sections. Um, I mean, the most important thing was that we got on the exact same page about what each chapter should look like. So Neil, I mean, so when I got into this process, Neil in one night built the argument of a book. It's like the craziest document I've ever seen. I mean, he knew what each chapter would be. He knew some of the arguments in each chapter. They fully flowed. I was working with like a beautifully built um, block of ice that it was clear where I needed to make cuts to the ice in this also annoying metaphor. Don't keep torturing it. I like to, it. To sort of like... Because you can't do car chassis because we don't know anything about that. No, yeah, yeah. I can't... The, yeah, the, the depths I can go here to make this work is not, it's not going to be you know, deep enough. But, but the, the cuts are not going to be deep enough, as it were. But I'm going to... you know, I knew where to make the cuts so that the sculpture would come out looking like a book. Um, but, you know, I would just like... My goal was, my goal was to write 3,000 words a day. Ended up being somewhere like 5,500 a day. Um, That's insane. It was a lot of words. And I just, and this is something that I think is actually a valuable writing lesson. Every time I give a piece of writing advice at my age, it feels absurd. But I just really try to be as uncritical on my rough draft as I possibly can. Like, I just vomit. Like, I just, like, I have, I have an outline, a clear outline, but I just, like, don't give a shit about the sentences the first time through. But equally important, because a lot of people get there when they talk about writing, is that I do not send it to anybody without going back through every sentence and making sure the sentences are all good and they all flow from one sentence to the next. Yeah, I was going to say, you beat the shit out of yeah, yourself Yeah, so this is what I was going to say. Revisions. So, so people love talking... A lot of people talk about how you have to do like an uncritical first pass at a thing. But I, like, no one's harsher on my writing than I am. So I then, you know, working in a limited time, a compressed time frame here, but like every sentence I'd be like, where's the unnecessary word? And the transition thing is the thing that I think like makes a speech work and makes a book work is just like how do we make sure when we're building an argument, you know, a 42,000 word argument in 3 weeks that the whole thing makes sense. That like it's not just like a good paragraph here and a good paragraph there but it all flows one thing to the next. I do a lot of work in the outline process there but if you think if if a transition feels forced and you're like using a however or moreover or some bullshit to like make it patched together, like the reader will be lost. Um, and so I made sure that all the transitions organically worked. And then over the course of a couple weeks, like did reconstruction surgery to all of the, all of the chapters, like where I would find, oh, this actually doesn't really work on a macro level. Some shit from chapter four got moved to chapter one. Like the writing process was kind of a mess, but it all came down to these like two things that I was using the whole time, which was a freedom to just write the first pass and then just destroying myself afterwards trying to make sure that 
all of it worked. And Neil did the same with his stuff and did the same with my stuff, and I did the same with Neil's stuff. Um, it was a fully symbiotic collaborative process. And the early reviews, I want to say, have talked about the lucidity of the prose and the fact that it's um, easily understandable, but that you guys don't short shrift the arguments either. You've laid the arguments out with rigor, but with clarity too, and the book is engaging. Um, oh yeah, and the book is also, you know, it's worth noting shorter than, I mean, I, I, definitely there were 50,000 words written, maybe 60,000 words written, and it was kind of, you know, one of those Mark Twain things where, you know, I'm sorry, I couldn't write you a shorter, shorter letter, I had enough time to write you a shorter one or whatever, I botched it, but... Um, like, I definitely spent a lot of time, because, like, the whole point of this book, like, what Neil wanted to do was write something that's digestible, easy to understand, but also comprehensive case against President Trump having to do with this Ukraine offense. And so we wanted it to be as short as it possibly could be. Like, we, we wanted it to be deep and thoughtful and comprehensive, but we wanted it to be dig easily digestible and clear and concise. So a lot of the work that we did on later drafts and that our editors and publishers helped us do um, was in making the argument concise and tight and clean. Um, and so I hope that if you buy the book, Impeach, the case against Donald Trump, um, you'll find that it's easy to read, it's a breeze, but doesn't feel um, like it's giving short shrift to anything. and doesn't feel, again, for the 18th time glib. And and uh, way fewer Godfather metaphors than in my work. No, but we've got some funky analogies in there. Like all throughout, we've got we've got weird stuff going on. I'm, I, I definitely inherited some of that. I mean, I don't know. Like in the first chapter, we talk about how deciding the election, um, deciding whether or not to remove Trump based on an election is like um, deciding to resolve this dispute with a game of Monopoly against someone who committed the crime of cheating on Monop uh, in a game of Monopoly. Like, that's a, that's a weird-ass reference. It's got less violence and gore than probably most of the references that define your work. But, um, you know, a little innocent Monopoly reference never hurt anybody. Loved it. And as um, it's not something I say very often to podcast guests, as I love you, son. And, uh, folks, you can find Sam on Twitter at... Sammy Koppelman. Sammy Koppelman. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can... Yes? You can... No, I was just going to say thank you so much for... Uh... For having me this was really fun and uh we do get to have these conversations often but i think that the microphones do help you get at some depth so thanks to everyone who's still listening as well um for being here with us yes no this was super fun i can't wait to have anna on here um sometime well her book would be i mean her book will be the best thing anyone who that is the truth is she's the best writer our, uh, my daughter sam's sister is the best writer in the family but, um, hey, everybody, thanks for listening. Go buy the book. Read the book. Read the book. You, you, read the book and understand what's going on and what we need to do. Read the book, Impeach, The Case Against Donald Trump by Neil Cachal, Sam Koppelman. Sam, thanks for being on the podcast, buddy. Thanks for having me. Love you, too.